welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast, where we take your questions from Sunday's teachings in order to form a dialogue about the scriptures and what God is teaching each and every one of us. Welcome back to the Beyond the Sermon podcast. Today is Sunday, March 5th. So happy March, everybody. Here's our first Sunday in March, and we are in our Revelation teaching series. It's it's going to be a teaching series that's going to take us, oh, somewhere between 27 and 28 weeks as we walk through the entire book of Revelation. And this week was week number five for us as we are still in chapter two. And in this second section, that is the seven churches, the seven messages or seven letters to the seven churches. This morning was the church of Pergamum or Pergamos, depends on just the, the phrase or the spelling that your Bible uh, translators chose. And uh, same place, it's a provincial capital of Asia Minor, Roman seat of power. Um, it's not as large and influential, culturally speaking, as Ephesus was. I think the way we described it this morning was that if Ephesus is New York City, Pergamum is, is Washington, D.C. It's a place of political power, but it's also a place of uh, religious influence as well on the in Pergamum, there was this conical hill uh, where there was all kinds of temples and altars to different gods that were at play, and the largest of it was a, a throne uh, that was actually built for Zeus. And so it's, it's interesting that there's this physical image there as as Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum and says, I, I know that you are, I know where you are, I know where you're living, I know that uh, Satan's throne is there. It's, there's this, there's this, this, this physical image. Um, not that that was literally Satan's throne. Um, sometimes we could read that image and think that uh, Jesus is recognizing the reality of the pluralistic, religiously pluralistic place that they're in and the challenges uh, that are there. Uh, one of the other central gods of Pergamum is the Roman god of, of healing. And, uh, and so, so even in this place that is offering healing and all this kind of stuff, uh, again, Jesus reminds them of who he is, of his authority and his ability to truly make you new, right? As he said at the end of the passage there, I will give to the one who conquers, the one who struggles on, I will give you um, manna, I'll give you some of the hidden manna, I will give you a white stone, and I will give you a new name. Uh, and so Jesus reminds them of the victory that is a store for all Christians that has been won by Christ. And so, uh, yet they're a church that is is middling, right? They they're in this middle ground. They're uh, they're not not as bad or in as grave shape as Ephesus or Laodicea. When we get to Laodicea here, uh, we'll see that uh, Ephesus and Laodicea are the two churches that are in the most grave uh, spiritual position of the seven churches. Uh, then you have you have Smyrna and Philadelphia, which are in good, uh, fairly good shape, or the best shape of the seven churches. Um, they're doing well. Jesus can Jesus's words to them are keep going, don't give up. Um, uh, again, you're in places that have great difficulty. Uh, again, when we looked at the letter to the church in Smyrna, I mean they're they're literally facing uh, political uh, martyrdom. Uh, Polycarp is the bishop of Smyrna, and somewhere around twenty years after John writes the book of, of Revelation or the letter of Revelation, uh, Polycarp will be martyred. He'll be, he'll be uh, uh, murdered for his faith in Christ, put to death for his faith in Christ, because he would not bend the power structures of the world at the time in Rome where, they, they, where he was being forced to make the claim that Caesar is Lord. And that was the normal claim of the day, centered in uh, emperor worship or Caesar worship, uh, that would have been permitted through all of all of the Roman Empire, but particularly in this region of Asia Minor, 
which historically became a Roman stronghold uh, even before Rome was a real world power. Um, and so, um, and, and the temples to, to emperor, worship, emperor for emperor worship uh, were some of the first temples um, to deify the emperors, starting with Augustus. And uh, after Augustus dies, the Roman Senate votes to deify him. And, um, and, and so you, you get all the way to Caligula, uh, the Roman emperor Caligula, who literally declares the gospel of Caligula, the good news of his coming and his arrival. Uh, very messianic claims. And so, so you can imagine, you can understand that the, the structures of the culture are in direct conflict with the structures of the church, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Messiah, that he came uh, to save. And so, uh, so that's where we get these seven letters uh, from these seven churches. But the, the three that we're about, or the, we just started, the middle section, and that is the three churches that are in this sort of middle ground. Uh, they're not in grave danger, but there are some things that are going on, as you heard this morning in Pergamum, uh, to, to the church in Pergamum, uh, have this against you, right? Um, they have begun to uh, become complicit, and they have, they have really had a lax attitude towards sin, a complacent attitude towards sin within the church, within the body of believers. Um, and so we, we were talking about sin this morning, and a bit of a theology of sin, and diving into what it is, and how can we, um, how can we struggle, how can we, how can we press on? And it's going to be, a, it's going to be an, a message that we're going to hear, a message that we're going to hear. Excuse me, here in for the next the next couple of weeks, right? As we walk in this middle section of uh, the seven churches, uh, to the church in Pergamum, the church in Theatira, and the church in Sardis, um, these are these middling churches. They're not in such grave shape. But they're certainly not in good shape. There's sin that is creeping in. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about that here for the next couple of weeks, about uh, the importance of resisting and repenting uh, sin. And so this first question it really comes along those lines. Um, it said, you mentioned that sin, uh, the, the sin action, is the tip of the iceberg. How do we identify the root, uh, the large unseen cause? That's a great question. Uh, today we talked about, when we talk about sin, we talked about sin includes three things. It includes our actions, so the things that we do or don't do, that is sins of commission or omission, um, the, the ungodly things that we participate in or the godly things that we do not participate in, right, willfully. So the action of sin. Uh, then there is the dominion of sin, that is the power of sin. And when the Bible talks about that, it says that we have been set free from that in Christ. Right? It does not say that we will not struggle with that. In fact, Paul reminds us that in 1 Corinthians 13, that even on this side of heaven, we see through a mirror dimly, but when perfection comes, we will see perfectly. Um, we see even in Jesus' words to the seven churches, that conquer word. Uh, we think of it as, in English, as someone who has conquered, right? It is a final action or the re reality of a final action. Uh, in the Greek, however, it, it is this struggling towards victory uh, idea. And so what Jesus is saying is those who are st keep struggling towards victory. And then he gives each church a picture of the victory that he promises, a victory that is theirs in Christ. Now, again, it's not a salvation by works. Uh, that, is, that is absolutely antithetical to the Scripture's uh, as a whole, um, and so so what we've seen in Revelation, even though there are some of these passages that go, oh, does that sound like salvation by works? We go, nope, <laughs> that violates Jesus's teachings. It violates the teachings of the scriptures. It violates um, right uh, from the from the whole of Scripture. We understand that salvation is by grace. I think one of the most poignant places is Ephesians two eight and nine. Salvation is a gift of grace by God 
not by work so that no man can boast, right? Paul says it is as clear as it can be said. John chapter 3, verse 16. So many of us learned that. If you grew up in the church, you learned that early on. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his one and only begotten son, that for anyone who believes in him shall not, what? Perish, but have eternal life, right? So what is it? The action of belief. Acts chapter 4, believe in the name and be saved, right? So we see this over and over and over again in the scriptures uh, in multiple places, even in the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is reflective of the Old Testament, the, the hall of faith there. Uh, it, their, for, their faithfulness, their faith was credited to them as righteousness, uh, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, speaking of these heroes of the Old Testament. They had a faith that God would save them, right? That is what's credited to them as righteousness. It doesn't say their actions. Um, it doesn't say their, uh, their moral obedience, because if you look at Abraham, who's mentioned in Acts chapter, or not Acts, excuse me, Hebrews 11, Abraham's life is a whole train wreck of up and down faithfulness. I mean, the dude tried to pawn off his wife twice as his sister, you know? So, uh, and that's when he was following God. Like, it's a, it's a mess in Abraham's life. And so, yet he is this remarkable picture of faithfulness for us because he continues to trust God, even when he's missed, even when he's failed, even when he's come woefully short of the mark. Um which is what sin is, uh, coming short of the mark of righteousness, or as we said this morning, displacing God as the central authority in our lives. So uh, when we talk about sin, um, we have to understand that it is uh, the presenting action is there, right? And sin includes the action, but it's also something more than that. It's the dominion and deficiency. Sin also includes those two things. So dominion is the power of sin that we are set free from in Christ, right? We have not worked our way out of that. Jesus, by our faith in him, has set us free. He says this power of sin no longer defines you. It's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17. He says you are now a new creation in Christ. Um, John talks about this in 1 John, that we have become the children of God, uh, and now we are to walk as Jesus walked. Um, Jesus has told us this in, in Revelation chapter 1. He said, I've made you a kingdom. Peter talked about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, you are now a royal nation, a holy priesthood. Uh, you are exiles, right? He's rem- these, the, these passages are reminding us of uh, our identity in Christ, that we are no longer defined by the dominion of sin, the power of sin. We no longer have to be captive to it. We are set free from that. And so, um, so when we, we recognize it in our posture to sin, right? So that informs our posture towards sin because if I'm set free from something, I, I'm not powerless over it anymore. Uh, before, when we were only walking in sin, it, it's just it's the thing that dominated us because we had not been set free yet. But now, because I'm in Christ, I am not powerless against sin. And so that plays in. That's the dominion of sin is the power of sin. I've been set free that plays in also to the deficiency. And often the action of our sin is the is in direct correlation to the deficiency that we are trying to overcome, right? There's some limit that we experience that we feel like, and I don't like it. I don't want to be defined by it. And, and what in the scope of biblical faithfulness, in the scope of uh, following Jesus faithfully, Jesus will help us to overcome those things in his time 
according to his purposes, uh, in, in, in by his teachings, right? When we when we submit to him in those things, sometimes you know, if my deficiency, we we look to solve our deficiencies in any kind, of, all kinds of ways. We we try to make sure we get the right career, so that we have the right vocation, the right money, the right prestige, the right status. Uh, we try to get the you know, we start to solve it with relationships. And how many of us have just made poor relationship choices, right? We've dated the wrong people. We've gotten involved with the wrong people. Um, because there was a there was a sense inside of us that I'm not complete unless I have someone else, and God has made us relational, right? So this is not this is not a heavy handed critique. Uh, we've all been there. We've walked in that. Um, e- even our pursuit of pornography, uh, both written pornography and uh, and visual pornography, which is super interesting. This is just a side note here. Um, Google Google Analytics will actually show that that men pursue uh, pornography by visual stimulation, right? So they tend to pursue uh, pictures, videos, those kind of things. Uh, women, uh, by and large, pursue written pornography or erotic literature, romantic literature, and, and yet it does the same thing, right, in the end. It, it displaces a physical relationship to fill a hole or a void in something that we're experiencing, right? We want to experience intimacy, and so we go to fill it in uh, with, with ways that weren't designed and physically can't fill it, right? It actually it actually creates more of a problem inside of us. But what's really interesting between men and women, uh, by and large, and uh, simply Google's search analytics, its algorithm will demonstrate this, um, that men tend to look for visual stimulation and women tend to look for written stimulation. And so um, in those in those areas, right? So, but it's a deficiency. There's a relational deficiency that we are going to solve. Now, God wants to complete us. He wants to make us whole, even in that relational deficiency, in that thing that we're struggling with, we're wrestling with, we're trying to solve on our own. Uh, God says, I, I will work my plans out for you. Now, the, the struggle for us is often we want that to be done right now. We want that to be done instantly. And God says, I'm doing a faithful work in you. And so that's going to take time. And ultimately, Mark chapter 8, the gospel is offensive to us. Even, even, even if you are a Christian, right? we still struggle to follow Jesus because we come back to the point that we think we know best. We've been set free from the power of that, the dominion of that mindset, so it doesn't have to define us any longer. But that doesn't mean we don't struggle with it, right? We're still going to struggle with it on this side of heaven. Uh, Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, um, if you, when you come to me, you are to deny yourself, right? You are to deny yourself. You are to pick up your cross, right? The gospel requires us to die to self so that we may follow Jesus. Even in our pursuit of Jesus as Christians, we are in a constant state of dying to self and following Jesus wholeheartedly. That's, that's a struggle. That's hard. Uh, so again, coming back to this question, you mentioned that, this, that, that the sin action is the tip of the iceberg. How do we identify the root, uh, the large unseen cause? So if we just simply look at the action, the presenting action or the presenting behavior, or the, uh, that's a sin of commission, right? The wrong or the ungodly thing that I did, or the ungodly thing that I, or the godly thing, excuse me, the godly thing that I didn't do, if we're just looking at the action and we say, I just need to do this, or I just need to not do that, we're basically talking about morality, right? And and Jesus's hope for us is not to simply be moral people. He's hoping, he desires for us to, to experience the fullness of his life uh, on this side of heaven, 
uh, even, even knowing that we won't experience the fullness of that now, uh, but to increasingly experience the fullness of his life here on this side of heaven so that it grows in anticipation for us in the reality that one day we will experience it in completion in the age to come. But if you just look at the presenting behavior, you're simply solving uh, the presenting action, right? You're simply saying, I need to be a moral person. Where Jesus is inviting us, he says, I want you to be like me. And in order for us to truly overcome sin, we need to begin to look below the waterline and ask, well, what is the thing that I'm trying to solve, right? So my posture is, as a, as a Christian, as somebody who's following Jesus, I am no longer captive to the dominion of sin. I am no longer defined by it, right? I can, I can live in righteousness according to Christ's standards because he's filled me with his Holy Spirit who's given me the ability, the power to do that. In my pursuit of righteousness, I, have to, I need to take time. I think this is probably the most important thing, and I talk about this especially with young men on the pornography issue. I say, you know, what is the pattern uh, of your use or your pursuit of pornography, right? Don't just say, I need to stop doing that, right? Yeah, yeah, you do, right? We do. It's a, it's a very common problem. Uh, it's something we need to stop doing, uh, but um, you're only looking at the action. What are you trying to solve? So what is your pattern, right? Uh, what is the pattern of sin in your life in that area, uh, do you, do you access it when you're tired? Do you access it when you're lonely? Do you, do you access it when there's some relational dysfunction going in your life, right? Step back when you've repented in the process of repentance, you've repented, you've asked for forgiveness. You said, Jesus, your way is better. I want to get back on that, right? Uh, in that process though, linger for a moment and ask, what was the pattern in my life that prompted me to do this? Right, was prompted me into this action. Um, I, I've shared I've shared many times from the pulpit before that one of the besetting sins that I struggle with is often my my temper. And it was a, I had a professor in my undergrad, Dr. Robinson. I, he I remember he my cognitive behavioral class. We were uh, diagnosing some maladaptive behaviors and some things in our own selves, our lives. And I remember Dr. Robinson. He told me um, in a in a private session with him. He said he said Kyle, you're going to struggle with this the rest of your life. You're going to see victory over it as you pursue Jesus. You're going to see victory over it in seasons, but new seasons are going to come up. New stressors, new flashpoints are going to come up, and and it's going to come back up. So it's a, this is a perpetual work that you're going to have to go through in your life. And and you know what? He's right. I have seen victory. I continue to see victory over that. I I, I praise God that I'm a far more patient person now than I than I was at 22, um, and I hope that I'll be a far more patient person at 55 than I am at 30, uh, 37, right, uh, and, and so on and so forth, you know, and that as I grow in patience, it's not just it's not just for my good, but ultimately it's for the glory of Jesus. Uh, but he was right, you know, and so so in my own parenting, uh, one of the things that I've had to do in my parenting is uh, in order to control my temper, uh, because I can get really upset pretty quickly. Um, and, and this was a thing like in athletics, it was the thing that made me what I was, right? My drive, my competition, the thing that I was praised for is actually a maladaptive behavior that makes me a bad husband, a bad pastor and a bad father. Right. Um, and so, uh, talk about an ironic having growth point, right? This, this thing that you are praised for and is helping pay for your college education, uh, is the very thing you need to root out of your life, <laughs> you know. So I'm grateful for Dr. Robinson to be a man in my life that spoke truth uh, in a very needed season. Uh, but what I do in my parenting is that when that comes up, 
Like I've, I've, I've made sure, and this is not just me like one day coming aware of it. It's, this is me uh, watching other men do this well and, and having men speak into my life in this arena, but to step back before punishing my children and asking what, what is really punishable and what is reasonable, right? Because there are so many times that our kids are just being kids and they've made mistakes as a kid, but there's something in me that gets tripped and I get upset and all of a sudden now I'm taking it out on them, right? That's not right. That's not right. That's me letting my temper get out of hand and, and uh, cause uh, dysfunction within my relationship with my kids and, or with my spouse, with Danielle and I. Um, there, there's rhythms and structures that we, we put, we've put in place so that we can argue well together, so that we don't uh, fly off the handle on those kind of things. Um, all of that came because I realized the tip of the iceberg, the presenting action was my temper, right? Uh, my temper gets out of control. I say things that I regret. I say things that are mean. I say things that are sinful, um, right? Those kind of things. And and it causes relational dysfunction. It causes, it causes hurt. It causes pain. It doesn't honor God, right? Um, uh, you know, and so I, that's the presenting behavior. Why is that? Why is that? And, and in the times of being able to step back and reflect, creating that space of stepping back and reflecting, um, there's, there's often the, the core issue is that my, my biggest fear is that of failure, of being a failure to others, being a failure to my family, those kind of things. Again, drives back to the thing that made me probably re- a, a fairly good athlete, right? No athlete wants to uh, fail. Uh, every athlete wants to succeed, right? So this drive and this competition, again, is this thing that needs to be rooted out in me to be a good husband, a good father, um, a, a good pastor, right? And, um, and to honor Jesus in every space that I'm in, uh, that needed to be rooted out for me. So I think, how do we do this? How do we identify the root uh, and unseen cause? Uh, the only answer to that is time. You have to create time and space to begin to process it. And you have to be willing to ask the question, right? What is it that's inside of me that I'm trying to solve? Now, uh, you can start there. And for some of the things that come up in our lives, that's enough. You begin to you begin to diagnose it. But this is also where community comes in. You need people in your life that are going to help keep you accountable. You need people in your life that you can share your struggle with, that they're going to call you out and call you up to Jesus. And honestly, there are seasons or there are things in our lives that sometimes some of our maladaptive behaviors or our sinful behaviors, that presenting action, is a result of trauma, is a result of uh, something sinful that someone else did to us and and we need we need significant care counseling uh, we need professional folks to be able to come and be in our corner and talk with us and help us pursue and, uh, and sort those things out uh, but all of that comes back whether it's whether it's you're pursuing counseling uh, whether it's 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 with in community with a friend and I would say that community with a friend is a non-negotiable like you need that uh, we need that that's why we often say Jesus, following Jesus is not a solo sport. Uh, we do it in community. Um, but you also have to create time when you're with God's word. God's word illuminates these things uh, to us as well. But the key ingredient here is time. When the presenting action of sin comes up in your life, in my life, are we simply rushing past it? You've asked God for forgiveness. John tells us in 1 John, if you, if you ask your father for forgiveness, he is faithful to forgive you. God has forgiven you. Uh, God, you've, you, your salvation was never dependent upon your work, so it's not like, I'm saved again, thank goodness. Nope, you were saved at the moment of your faith, 
Um, your the imputed righteousness of Christ was put on you. It is kept for you in Christ, not depending upon your uh, uh, your performance. And so, um, so often our response to the action of sin: ask God for forgiveness and move away from that moment and that discomfort as quickly as possible, so that we can forget it. Right? Instead, let us sit there and linger a little bit, knowing we are loved, we are forgiven. My status with God has not changed. But let me linger here and ask the Father, what, what is the deficiency that I'm really trying to solve here? What is the thing that I'm trying to correct in this moment and with this behavior or with this action, right? Now, letting the Father begin to speak over you in that. So uh, the key here in this is that if you want to identify the root of your sin, the large unseen cause, there is no shortcut for time. There's no shortcut for time. You need to create time to be in God's word, to let the truth of God illuminate this situation, to be in prayer, to let the Father speak to you through the power of the Holy Spirit over this situation, uh, time in community uh, to share with others so that they can hold you accountable, but also encourage you. Accountability isn't just some beat-down session. It's to also be an encouragement, right? Um, and then and then also time, if, if this root cause is because of some wrong that someone has committed against you, some injustice, uh, something that someone, some sinful action that someone has done, and and you need counseling and you need you need you need a, a greater level of care to, to work through those things, uh, then then pursue that, pursue that, but that requires time, right? So when we think about this, how do we identify the root of the large unseen cause? It's creating time and space to ask the question: What deficiency am I trying to solve? And then time to allow and to establish the mechanisms around that to help you grow uh, through it and past it to, and to achieve victory. And again, remember when we talk about victory, victory is often something that is experienced now in part. Like I told you, I've shared this uh, so many times now, but with, even with my, my temper, my growing, te- you know, my growing in sanctification and growing in Christ-likeness in that area, it, it is it is. Each and every season, each and every moment, I'm seeing Jesus work in me and through me in that way. I love it. Matt Chandler, he said it this way one time. Your first child, talking about parenting, he said your first child gets your least sanctified self and your last child gets your most sanctified self, right? Uh, I mean, Danielle and I have watched that play out in real time with our kids, right? So our oldest, (laughs) you know, um, we're way more spiritually mature uh, now than when our our oldest uh, was born. Uh, why? Because God used all kinds of mechanisms. He used our marriage. He used our friendships. He used parenting. He used our kids to grow us into the conformity of Jesus. So even in my life, my growth in that area of sin or my overcoming of that area of sin of my temper, um, it, it has come in stages. It has come in seasons. I've seen God work, and yet I know that God it still has work to do in me uh, uh, through that uh, arena. So uh, be encouraged that victory comes in seasons and in steps. Uh, sometimes God does a work where he just sets us free from something. He can do that. Uh, but often he, he walks faithfully with us as we grow using the circumstances of our lives to grow us in maturity in those, in those areas. So there's no shortcut for time uh, and the willingness to ask the question, what deficiency um, or, or, or what thing am I trying to solve? Am I trying to make whole, trying to make complete in my life? through this sinful action. So great question. It's something we need to wrestle with deeply here uh, in our pursuit of Jesus. 
The next question that comes up is, which church would CCC probably be closest to, or which issues uh, may have the highest odds of being true of, of CCC, of Christ Community Church here, our church? That uh, is a great question. I think it's, it's a worthwhile question, um, and it even, it even comes together with, the, with, with this other question that was sent in and said, do you feel that with today's culture, the easiness of sex and media, we have a lot in common with the Church of Pergamum? Uh, so I would actually say, I think, I think what we're going to see in, the, in this section of the middling churches, the churches that are, they're not in terrible shape, but, but Jesus is going to call them out, um, a lot of it is their approach to sin. Uh, their approach to sin, their approach to faithfulness, their complicitness with the culture, um, and their their lax attitude towards righteousness or following Jesus wholeheartedly, and go and making concessions like, oh, that one's not a real big deal. Eating 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 meat sacrificed to idols, uh, knowing knowingly eating meat sacrificed to idols, eh, not a big deal. You know, sleeping with the temple prostitutes, eh, not a real big deal. Like Jesus forgives you. There's grace. You know, it's okay. Um, um, these are real issues that were facing the, the the first century. I mean, you think about Paul in First Corinthians. He talks about meat sacrificed to idols. He goes, look, if you go to somebody's house and you know that it was sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. Or you're participating in their idolatry. If you go over to somebody's house and have dinner and they don't tell you that it was sacrificed to idols, uh, eat it. It's okay. Like there's, there's liberty and there's conscience, you know, in some of these issues. But what Paul is always very clear about is that we are to never... Uh, knowingly diminish the sin, right? We're never to say, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. Jesus didn't really mean what he said there, or um, he'll forgive me anyway, so uh, I can go ahead and do that. You know, and that's, what, that's what's happening in the church of, of Pergamum. And, and, and again, even in this question of uh, the easiness of sex and media, we just talked about it in the sin question, right? Um, the, prolifer- the proliferation of uh, sexual content on the web, um, and, and we often think of it as simply of uh, images, but it's not just images. It's in messaging, it's in written, it's in all of those kind of things um, where we often uh, talk about normalizing um, you know, the pursuit of the blatant pursuit of sexuality in whatever form that it comes in, right? And so, uh, so for us as a modern church, uh, what, which church are we most like, um, or, or are we even like the Church of Pergamum? I just think I think what we're going to see is that we we probably draw culturally right now uh, to the place of these middling churches um, where we are struggling and we're saying, "Oh, is that sin really a big deal? You know, what if we just, um, you know, God loves us and and He does love us, uh, but His love only matters if there's truth, right?" Again, we've said it. We've said in the series that theology matters because, if uh, because God's promises only count, God's promises only matter if God's character can deliver on them. Uh, we've also said it over over the years here. Of uh, you've heard me say it this way: that that grace needs truth. All right, grace can't be grace unless there's truth. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, and that only happens if there's an actual standard to be held to. And so Jesus comes in the fullness of grace and truth. John chapter one. Um, verses 14 to 16. He literally comes in the, in the fullness of grace and truth. And so in Jesus, we see the fullness of God's grace and we see the truth of God, the substance of God, the reality of God's character and his nature, right? And so, so we need these things. Um, so I, I think we're in a position right now in the 21st century um, uh, in the Western church, even our church here in, in Ames, of, of justifying sin, going lax on sin, 
Uh, and that doesn't mean that we are to condemn people, right? So I think that's what's uh, so often when we talk about this reality is that we go, well, yeah, but what about people? We don't want people. We want to love people. Yes, we are to love people. And that means that uh, that we don't we don't draw artificial lines where artificial lines don't need to be drawn, and we don't make things that are not salvific uh, salvific issues. Right? Jesus doesn't say get your life cleaned up and then come to me for salvation. Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest." Right? Uh, the central issue is that of Jesus. Let's get Jesus right, and then Jesus will begin to bring into conf- uh, conformity all the other areas of our lives. But one of the ways that Jesus does that work in us is by living in community. That, uh, that when we live in community and, and, and we are reminded of God's truth, we recite God's truth together, it reminds us of the principles, of the truths that God has for us to live by. And if, if the community is saying, oh, those truths aren't a big deal, well, then, then, then we begin to say, oh, those things aren't a big deal, and I can, be, I can walk in that sin. And it's not really a big deal. God still loves me. God forgives me. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he forgives you. But your motivation for obedience and righteousness is that life is better with Jesus, right? And we didn't just get a ticket punch so that we would, you know, spend eternity apart from God. We are experiencing eternity here and now as we pursue Jesus. We're, pers- we're, we're experiencing it in part, we're getting tastes of what we experience later. Why would we trade that in? Why would we trade the fullness of an abiding relationship with Jesus in for temporary pleasures of sin? And as we said today, pleasures that we know and we've experienced, it doesn't take some theologian or philosopher to to, uh, convince us of this epistemologically, Uh, we know that what sin promises, it cannot deliver on because we've experienced it. We've experienced it. We've walked in brokenness. We've walked in sin. We've walked in dysfunction. And we've come on the other side and said, that didn't measure up. That didn't live up. That didn't meet what I, what I, what I thought it was going to do. Right? It didn't deliver on its promise. It's the story of Adam and Eve. It's the story of all of us. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only one who we've experienced that has lived up, that has measured up, that has kept his promise and has delivered on it the more that we experience him. So why would we trade that out? Why would we trade that out, that experience out here and now for something that we know that will not deliver, right? So our call to obedience is, is a call uh, not of moral performance, but is, is a call of communion with God, of experiencing God's presence and his love and his care in increasing ways not that God's presence is increasing, he's always been with us, but we become more aware of it. We become more in tune with it. We become more delighted by it. And this is a process that we're happening uh, for all of eternity. Uh, that's beautiful and that's mysterious, that we'll never get tired of God's presence in, in eternity, right? Um, so uh, for us, the, the, one of the constant messages, uh, we heard it to Ephesus, there was the Nicolaitans here in Pergamum, the Nicolaitans again, uh, sexual, sexual uh, promiscuity, sexual uh, idolatry, really that's what it is. It's sexual idolatry, and that's what even in our, in, our, in our blatant pursuit of sexual pleasure in our current culture, it's sexual idolatry. It's us, it's us making an idol out of our bodies and out of, out of uh, sexual, sexual gratification. It becomes an idol. It becomes a god that we worship, right? And so 
these churches are facing that issue. We're facing that issue. We're facing that issue in increasingly uh, different ways uh, as, as we go along in the years, right? Um, so I think we are, we are at risk uh, here, these middling churches uh, in the book of Revelation. We're at risk to continue to grow complacent towards sin. But we're also at risk for the church of Ephesus was at risk that their pursuit of doctrinal purity drove them to forget those that were in desperate need around them. Jesus said to the, to the, to the church in Ephesus, he said, um, you have right doctrine, right? Let me just read to the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil. This is chapter 2, verse 2. Your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not called themselves apostles and found them to be false. Their, their, uh, their work, their toil, their, person, their patient endurance in the church of Ephesus was to test the doctrines of others so that they would not be swindled by false doctrine. Jesus says, you've done that well. There's so much in the Western church and Western evangelicalism where we, where we pursue and we test uh, doctrine, we test theology, and we really get nuanced about it and I think that's, that's, that's a worthwhile pursuit because, again, as he said, the promises of God only matter if the character of God can deliver. And theology teaches us about the character of God. But here's what Jesus had against the church in Ephesus. He said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What was a love that they had at first? A love to share Jesus with others. Their pursuit of doctrinal and theological purity caused them to forget those that were hurting in their community, right? So I, I think we can we can draw we can mine and and, and experience lessons from all of the seven churches, um, but I think the two that stand out to us are going to be prominently the church in Ephesus, that uh, for for believers, especially in the American West and even in our church today, we can pursue doctrinal purity with such rigor that we forget the love of others that we forget our love of sharing Christ because somebody shared Jesus with us and it, and it caused us great hope and joy as we placed our faith in Jesus and we experienced eternal life for the first time, right? We can pursue such rigorous theological perfection and precision that it causes us to forget about the hurting, dying world that is around us. And... Uh, we can go like the church in Pergamum or this, these, these middling churches in the, in the middle section here, the church of Pergamum, Theatira, and Sardis, where we can become very lax on sin. And we can say, you know what? I want to love you, and I want you to experience God's love, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go easy on this one on you, right? It's not that big of a deal. Right? You don't really have to obey God that way. right? We can become complicit and complacent uh, with our approach to sin. And Jesus says, you don't get to do both. You've got to, we, want, we want to love others, but what, what is the most loving thing to do is to share the gospel of Jesus and then to walk in community together as Jesus is calling us into conformity with his plans and his purposes. Now, that's not easy. These are not easy, and this is why we have this entire section here, and I love that God put this entire section here in the Bible of reminding us, hey, here are seven churches in Asia Minor in the, at the end of the first century that are struggling to be faithful. Keep struggling on. Keep centered on Jesus. Keep centered on the truth and the authority of Scripture. And let us continue to work out how that is, how, how we might say that well to our neighbors um, that, that, are, that are around us and are hurting and need 
and, and need truth and not put stumbling blocks before them, right? Don't make, don't make secondary or, uh, or third level issues, primary salvation issues. Uh, let's keep the gospel clear, but let's also not grow lax on righteousness, not grow lax on coming into conformity with Jesus and our approach to sin. So, so who are we? Um, I, I think I think we can really mine some serious relevance. I think we can really, if we take a long, hard look in the mirror, we'll see parts of us uh, are the Church of Ephesus, parts of us are Pergamum. Um, a, a complicity towards sin and a theological rigor that uh, causes us to forget uh, and abandon those that are needing to hear the gospel. So uh, these are great questions. Love that we're wrestling through this. But again, more than anything, as we consider this, let us continue to uh, pray to be found faithful. Lord, find us faithful. Lord Jesus, find us proclaiming the goodness of your gospel, both in our lived experience through our everyday lives and in our words, uh, so that eternity would be a much bigger place. It'd be a much more full place. Um, and, and we would grow in our affections for Jesus in the process. So church, let us continue to be faithful, strive to be faithful, strive to share the gospel and uh, to continue putting ourselves uh, under the, at the feet of the authority of the scriptures and of, of God. So uh, love these questions, love wrestling through it. Can't wait to keep uh, talking through the book of Revelation in the weeks and months to come. Thank you.